Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss Hello and welcome history friends, patrons, PhD pals, all to episode 10 of the 17th Century Warfare series. After several episodes of background detail, we're finally ready to delve into arguably the most famous, certainly the most dashing part of these theories, those which concern the Swedes, specifically their king Gustavus Adolphus, who ruled Sweden from 1611 to 1632. That 20-year period was significant for several reasons, but a significant feather in Gustavus's cap, we are told, was his ability to harness new ideas, like those proposed by Maurice of Nassau, and make them his own. So in this episode, I want to examine these ideas and innovations, and in the next instalment, we will see them put to the test in one of the most significant and pivotal battles of the Thirty Years' War, Breitenfeld. Just what did Gustavus do to make military historians so fond of him? And can we claim that he perfected what Maurice created, or would that be too much of a stretch? Let's find out as I take you to the early 17th century. Before we start this episode, I want to ask you a question. Could you be a PhD pal? What is a PhD pal? And why do I need so many friends and pals and all this kind of thing? Well, if you weren't aware, we recently launched what is called a special offer on Patreon. And for the month of October, if you were to sign up on Patreon at the PhD Pal level, then you'd be entitled not just to get our new book on the Thirty Years' War when it's released in January, a signed copy by the way, but also to get yourself listed in the acknowledgements as a Thirty Years' Warrior. It's very exciting. You'll, of course, get the other perks that go along with that tier, such as the extra audio content and the additional merchandise that will be yours. Now it is $12 a month, and while that might sound a bit steep, it is an investment in the podcast, and, well, if you wanted the book anyway, then this is a handy way to get it without having to actually pay for it up front. Maybe you do want to pay for it up front, though, and maybe you want to send out a pre-order now. I would, of course, encourage you to do so. We don't like talking about money here at When Diplomacy Fails, but this podcast is providing me with my income while I'm doing the PhD, hence the name PhD Pal as the $12 tier. If you're interested, head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. 
If you want to know more information about what it means to be a PhD pal, then check out the episode we released a few days ago, literally saying, could you be my PhD pal or something to that effect. There's also a blog post if reading is something you'd prefer to do instead of listening. But either way, you should have plenty of options if you want to get that information down. Make sure to stay plugged into us on social media because for the next month we will be gently reminding you that time is of the essence and that this offer is not going to be around for very long. October is my birthday month so I feel like there's no better time to do it than now. Loads of history friends have already upgraded to the PhD pal level or signed up full stop and I really appreciate that. I also think that they won't regret it because not only do we have the nice incentive of the book But we also have what's called Hardcore When Diplomacy Fails, which is a new kind of series and a new formula that I'll be honing in on and perfecting several times a year. Expect episodes that are very detailed, that we go deep into on topics which we have yet to properly analyse, such as the first three topics, which you can vote on, by the way, the poll is live now, anyone can vote, but the three topics are Bismarck, World War II or 100 Years War. And yes, they are really, really vague, but that's because I like to keep things vague and broad so that I can hone in on them later on. Whatever we choose, Hardcore When Diplomacy Fails will be exclusive audio content available only to $12 patrons and above. So we are, as you can see, bringing in new levels and rewarding those patrons who have been so generous and so passionate about this podcast for so long. Again, I really appreciate all that you've done so far, And even if you're just listening to this right now and you have no intention of signing up and giving me your hard-earned cash, I really appreciate you spreading the word and listening in and just being enthusiastic enough about this era in history to listen in in the first place. Without any further ado then, let's get on with the episode. So we need to set the scene. It's late May, 1630, and we're off the coast of Stockholm, floating on the dark waters of the Baltic. A flotilla is assembling for war. An expedition is being prepared, with some 15,000 men, staffed with officers for the infantry, cavalry and artillery, and composed of men from the British Isles, Germany, Sweden and Finland, and many other places besides. The army was a multinational force in many respects, but its flags were Swedish and its commander was arguably the most famous Swede of all time. One Scottish colonel in his service, Robert Monroe, himself rather famous in his own right, would later write, A young cavalier, desirous of honour and greedy of good instruction, could have learned from this king. Such a general would I gladly serve. Indeed, any young cavalier could have gained invaluable experience through service with the Swedish king. By 1630, He had certainly taken part in enough campaigns, and during the course of countless battles, Gustavus Adolphus had demonstrated his flair for acts of personal bravery, his penchant for innovation, and his remarkable skill for command. These qualities, which so distinguished Gustavus as a remarkable man in an era of remarkable men, would also contribute to his death in battle in November 1632 at the Battle of Lutzen in Saxony. In short, as his flotilla assembled, Gustavus had fewer than three years left to live, but in the space of that period of time, the King of Sweden would not merely transform the Thirty Years' War, he would also 
propel the Swedish Empire to the pinnacle of its powers. He would defeat the veteran commander of the Habsburgs, twice, and he would ruin the years of supremacy established by the Emperor. By the time of his death, it was evident that the conflict which he had visited for such a short time would never be the same again. Many factors contributed to the legend of Gustavus Adolphus, but the Swedish king would have been nothing without his acumen in the military sphere. He was born into conflict with Sweden's powerful neighbours in the Baltic, and a less capable king could have lost his lands and throne, their reigns snuffed out and never to begin. In 1611, Gustavus's father died. Nearly two decades before, he had deposed his nephew, the Catholic and Polish Sigismund, and the latter had fled to his Polish homeland vowing revenge. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, then the most populous and one of the most powerful states in Europe, was thus positioned as a dynastic enemy of Gustavus Adolphus from an early stage, and cousin Sigismund was determined to reclaim his birthright, a struggle he never relinquished his entire life. Coming to the throne as a teenager, the young Gustavus inherited a sparsely populated kingdom of fewer than one and a half million men. During the war with Denmark that Gustavus also inherited, Sweden's manpower shortages were so well known that a rumour had been put about among the Danish soldiery that Swedish women populated the cavalry. Gustavus did not conscript Swedish women. Instead, he depended upon the vast manpower pool which Germany and the British Isles provided. That Gustavus inherited a war on several fronts, with the neighbouring powerhouse of the Baltic in Denmark, with his dynastic nemesis in Poland, and even with the looming threat of Russia, compelled him to make the best use of the meagre resources he had at hand. Yet, an instant innovator, Gustavus was not. Like many monarchs of his age, he received minimal military training, and save for a conversation with the cousin of Maurice of Nassau recorded in 1620, there is no direct evidence that he had a true chance to absorb the innovations of the Dutch drill. Certainly the availability of drill manuals could have made up for such a deficiency, but short of evidence that Gustavus actually read these manuals, and considering his later behaviour it certainly suggests that he did, we are reduced to speculation. If he did read them, he did not initially heed their ideas. In 1611 Gustavus's concept of the ideal unit was the squadron, conceived to contain a precise number of 408 men, with 216 pikemen forming the central block. On each wing of this block, 96 musketeers would stand, with all men standing six rows deep. On occasion, a detachment of 96 more musketeers, used interchangeably for scouting, cavalry support and outpost duty, were also attached to the squadron. We're therefore left with a puzzling contradictory image, where the supposed master of firepower boasted more pikemen in his squadrons than the Dutch, and used tactics which seemed to be closer to the Spanish method than any truly new innovations. When one considers the circumstances of Gustavus's wars, though, the reliance on pike is less surprising than it might first appear. To begin with, conflict with heavy Polish cavalry necessitated the use of pikemen to defend the musketeers, while the weakness of the firearm, especially in the harsh climates endured by his men, moved Gustavus to cleave to tried and tested weapons. It was an accepted part of warfare that the musketeers or arquebusiers, that being the lighter firearms, needed protection when reloading, 
a lack of pikemen rendered infantry vulnerable to other pikemen, but above all, cavalry charges. Pikemen, Colonel Monroe insisted, shall ever be my choice when going on execution, as also in retiring honourably with disadvantage from an enemy, especially against horsemen, and we see oft-times that when musketeers do disband of greediness to make booty, the worthy pikemen remain standing firm, with their officers guarding them and their colours. But pikemen were unmistakably in the decline, especially with new technological developments in firearms. Gustavus played no small role in furthering these developments, appreciating the importance of speed and manoeuvrability, and the Swedish king endeavoured throughout the 1620s to reduce the weight of the musket, traditionally the much heavier firearm. So heavy was the musket that it could not be held at an appropriate angle without the use of a fork placed in the ground. For those of us that might have the image of musketeers standing there and all firing their weapons in unison, the reality was a bit different, and rarely would musketeers ever stand with their weapon loaded and pointed at the enemy without the use of a fork to aid them. Gustavus sought to adjust the length and weight of the musket while retaining its high calibre and stopping power. At the same time, he did away with the fork that would be used to rest the musket on, and he replaced it with the so-called Swedish feather, an implement which was really a thin pike, which could double as a palisade stake for halting cavalry, or in some cases as a rudimentary bayonet, thus granting musketeers a more sophisticated form of protection and reducing the need for as many pikemen. Nor was that all. In the course of watching his men fumble with different quantities of powder used to load their weapons, Gustavus worked to standardise the size of the charge. Some historians report that Gustavus invented and sponsored the use of the powder cartridge, with Swedes thereafter adopting bandoliers with these cartridges carried across their shoulders and chest. Other historians are more sceptical, noting the lack of direct evidence for this innovation, and suggesting that it was a natural reaction by the soldier to the chaotic circumstances of warfare. Either way, thanks to these innovations, Gustavus's men were equipped with more manageable firearms which could be loaded with greater haste. There remained much to be done before the kind of total standardisation we now take for granted would be possible. Gustavus's men brandished wheel lock, match lock, and even some expensive flintlock firearms, and scant regulations on the size of these weapons meant that it was often unclear whether a soldier carried a carbine, a musket, or an arquebus. Occasionally, the cavalry made use of innovations to replace their pistoles with the shortened carbines, and wheel-lock weapons were of great use on horseback, and at night when the element of surprise could be ruined by a bright burning match. While Gustavus's innovation with cavalry, and artillery in particular, are deservedly renowned, it was equally imperative that the Swedish king honed his infantry to create the best squadron of foot that could be mustered. As we have stated, Gustavus's army was shaped by the experiences of his wars with his Polish cousin, thus prompting retired American lieutenant colonel and historian Theodore Dodge to write that In his wars against the Poles, not above taking a hint from any source, he resorted to the old Roman, or one might say, the English longbowman's habit of having the men carry sharpened palisades, not for camping, but to erect a defence against the Polish lancers, from behind which they could fire upon them. This was a species of survival of the musket rest. It finally became only a pointed, 
iron rod, and to it some have ascribed the origin of the bayonet. Indeed, while he learned from his enemies, Gustavus also learned from his mistakes. The squadron which was conceived in 1611 and contained more pikemen than musket was replaced 15 years later in 1626 with startling results. He changed the composition of his regular squadron, expanding it to four companies of 150 men. Within these four companies, the ratio of pike to musket was adjusted considerably, with 75 musketeers, 55 pikemen and 20 officers. Four companies of 600 men would form a squadron, and eight companies of 1,200 men would constitute a regiment, which would then be drawn from and paid for by the different provinces of the Swedish kingdom, at least in theory. Just as startling as the new updates to his army composition was how he planned to make use of the pike and shot. For so long, the pike had been reduced to a mere defensive weapon, lethal for sure, but tasked with serving a specific purpose. Gustavus changed this purpose. He would use the musket to soften the enemy up, and he would then order the pike forward to finish the enemy off. The first part of this process, where the musketeers were intended to prepare the ground for the pike's assault, was made more formidable by another innovation by the Swedish king. Fire by rank. Granted, firing by rank was not a wholly new idea. For the best results from a line of musketeers, it was necessary to coordinate their firepower with the men around them. A properly organised force could send out a wave of shot several times in a minute, but Gustavus Adolphus's innovations with fire by rank are significant because he took this approach to the next level. As the historian Frederick J. Baumgartner noted, he recognised that handgunners were vulnerable to a hard assault by enemy pike or heavy cavalry, and he realised that the changes he proposed to make in the way handgunners fought would increase their vulnerability. Gustavus further appreciated how the pike in the hands of a well-drilled and spirited infantry could be an effective offensive weapon. The opportunity for the pike to reach the enemy's lines and carry home the charge had to be prepared by gunfire. Gunfire would be far more effective if it was a concentrated blast that shattered the enemy's ranks, after which the pike would charge. Gustavus therefore insisted that his musketeers carry an 11-pound musket, which was about as heavy as the standard piece and did not need the fork, and that they learned to fire salvos. His musketeers were formed into six ranks. Once they had loaded and were ready to fire, three ranks combined into one line. The first rank knelt, the second stooped, and the third fired over the top of the other two. At the sergeant's signal, they fired simultaneously. The concentrated blast of the three ranks would break up the enemy's lines and give the pikemen openings to exploit their charge. But if the salvo failed to accomplish the desired result, the pike was needed in strength to defend the musketeers until they had reloaded. Six lines of between 12 and 13 men were thus trained and commanded to fire in unison and to swap places when reloading. Pikemen, therefore, were on standby to defend the musketeer in the midst of this process, but above all, they were there to drive home their weapons into the shattered enemy. The suddenness of this firepower being brought to bear was unlike anything anyone in Germany had ever seen, and we will note that it was something of a departure from what Maurice of Nassau had conceived of as well. What it held in common with the latter's theories was its use of firepower to inflict the most damage. 
By the time the pikemen moved forward for the attack, the grunt work would already have been done by the murderous projectiles. With the There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Enemy's morale, shorty and tatters. If the first couple of salvos did not produce the desired result, the process would simply be repeated. Performing this procedure under enemy fire was very different to proposing it within the safe confines of military doctrine, of course, and we imagine that even the most disciplined, organised war machine would have struggled when face-to-face with other motivated professional armies. Yet the Swedish advantage in the sudden volume and density of firepower which they could project gave them the edge over their Polish foes in the remaining year of the war and proved devastatingly effective against the Spanish Tertios. The Spanish took some time to adjust the composition of their Tertio formations to account for new developments in firearm technology, whereas Gustavus sought to advance the study of said technology to benefit his infantry. Although some Tertios did make a limited use of the new countermarch technique, such a technique was incredibly difficult to coordinate in the units of 900 arquebusiers which the Spanish tended to wield, or more, particularly when pikemen got in the way and a Tertio square kind of counted against innovations. Michael Roberts even referred to the wastage of manpower in the Tertio system, as only the soldiers at the front of the formation could use their pikes or fire their weapons. The Swedish model, by contrast, harnessed the full extremity of the musket. On the battlefield, for both systems to clash, we should imagine a Tertio of 2.5 or 3,000 men combating two Swedish regiments, 1,200 men apiece. With the Swedish technique, as all available firearms were brought forward, the Swedes would possess as many as 600 muskets, all firing in three coordinated lines, directly into the heart of the Spanish squares. The Tertio's limitations would then be on full display, because the weight of fire which they could bring to bear against the Swedes was massively compromised by their restrictive formation. 
Tens, or even hundreds of Spanish infantry would be struck down in the initial salvos and multiplied across the line, the visual would have been murderous. We should imagine also this fearsome combination in league with the revolutions in musket style, which made the weapon more manageable and versatile and less unwieldy. Gustavus's 11-pound muskets packed a serious punch and would have done far more damage to human flesh than the smaller arquebus. It would have appeared and sounded like the 17th century equivalent of the rapid-fire machine gun, and before the Battle of Breitenfeld in September 1631, the Spanish had never seen anything like it. While changes to the drill and infantry composition were significant, it was when Gustavus combined these innovations with revolutions in the theatre of artillery that the Swedish war machine truly distinguished itself. Notwithstanding the disagreements by historians over the extent of Gustavus's influence on infantry tactics, all are in agreement that the Swedish king transformed not merely how artillery was used, but also how it was viewed and how the artillery gunners thought of themselves. To appreciate the full breadth of this change in the status quo for artillery, it helps to briefly examine the position of artillery when Gustavus came to the throne in 1611. Artillery gunners in the 16th and early 17th century were the battlefield equivalent of magicians. The secrets of their craft were jealously guarded, tricks of the trade scarcely revealed to those outside the profession, and the profession itself was thankless, immensely taxing, and very difficult to access. It was still, Michael Roberts noted on artillery, in the medieval sense of the word at least, very much a mystery. Ballistics being by no means a science in the 17th century, range finding was done by mere estimations. Adjustments to the range or angle of the gun were made, incredible though this might sound, by bashing in wedges of wood between the gun and its supports to create a rudimentary elevation. Such activity, around so many volatile ingredients, did not recommend the profession to the faint at heart, and it was horrendously tough on beast as well as on man. This was because before a gun could even be used, it would have to be moved, and this was a process all in of itself. To put it in perspective, the heaviest calibre available during the Thirty Years' War, the monstrous 48-pounder, required a number of anywhere between 33 to 39 horses to pull it. If horses were unavailable in that number, as was often the case, then peasants would be conscripted for this miserable task instead and the number of men required for the task could run into the hundreds. While dutifully pulling these weapons, horses suffered terribly, with the annual mortality rate of the unfortunate beasts anywhere between 20-30%, to and that was just the weapon itself. The ammunition also required transport, or the cannon was basically just a great big lump of metal. Once again, the unwieldy machinery of the early modern era whirred into action to create ammunition or artillery trains. Generally, these were just a set of wagons assigned the task of moving the shot from place to place. Again, the task of moving enough ammunition for the varied calibre of guns, 16 different pieces existed in Sweden when Gustavus ascended to the throne, by the way, meant that hundreds of wagons and thousands of horses had to be used. To put it in perspective, when Gustavus arrived to fight the Poles in Livonia in 1625, he brought with him 36 guns, but these weapons required 220 wagons and 1,000 
116 horses to pull the loads. Creating and supplying artillery, in short, was an administrator's nightmare. The gun manufacturer hardly had a better time of it, since the act of producing large guns remained shrouded in debate, frustrating a common method of production or quality. Technically, gunsmiths were meant to use gunmetal, an alloy composed mostly of copper with some parts of tin added. Iron was generally avoided because it was so inconsistent and could literally explode, creating horrendous scenes where self-inflicted shrapnel wounds tore through the rear of an army. Iron also tended to rust and was often used only on smaller guns as a result. As if this wasn't bad enough, to compensate for its shortcomings and make a reliable iron gun would require a barrel of far larger size than its copper equivalent if you wanted to stop it from shattering, and this meant that the larger calibre guns, such as the 48 pounders if they were made out of iron, became impossibly heavy. Broadly, gunsmiths knew of two different classes of gun. You had the field gun, or you had the siege gun. But in 17th century warfare, this was where artillery classification of any meaningful kind pretty much ended. Field artillery in particular was notoriously unwieldy, and experimentation with it was minimal, as commanders would rather use the horse or manpower in the front lines. Indeed, the combination of lacklustre accuracy with an underwhelming rate of fire must have made many commanders wonder why they had bothered to lug these pieces across the field in the first place. This leads us to note that even after such a terribly laborious process, guns remained woefully inaccurate and they suffered from a painfully slow rate of fire. The black smoke from the cannon had to be allowed to completely dissipate before firing again, lest they might fire prematurely, and cannons would often be cooled on the battlefield with anything on hand, sometimes water, occasionally milk or vinegar. The durability of the guns and their calibre varied from different manufacturers in different countries, but often guns would be expected to shatter after several shots being fired, or they'd simply fail to ignite. According to some authorities, the average brass gun would fire no more than 30 shots before expiring, and on the field if used during a siege or a pitched battle, the rate of fire varied due to countless factors, from the wind to the terrain. Some have argued that it was possible for a large calibre 24-pound cannon to fire 8 rounds an hour, but other estimates claim that a well-trained crew could let off as many as 20 rounds. Others commented that the smaller guns, like Gustavus's 3-pounders, could maintain a more regular rate of fire of 15 consistently, but even this is disputed. Albrecht of Wallenstein, Imperial Generalissimo and benefactor of the Emperor, expelled an average of 9 shots an hour during the 6-hour Battle of Lutzen. He fought with Gustavus in 1632. Yet, Count John of Nassau, the cousin of Maurice, opined that guns would never and should never be called upon to fire more than 5 times in a single battle. Perhaps it was above Count John's imagination to suppose that any commander in his right mind would rely on their heavy cannon to do any more than that. So into this morass of confusion, mystery and inefficiency dived the Swedish king. If his aforementioned campaign into Livonia required 220 wagons and 1,116 horses for just 36 guns, then the figures for his 1630 campaign in Germany, five years later, 
illustrate the importance of his reforms. When landing in Pomerania, Gustavus brought 72 guns, double the amount that he had brought before, but this time he required only half the amount of wagons and just 1,000 horses in order to move it. This was a marked improvement on the situation from five years before. The question then is what Gustavus did while he was simultaneously redefining the tactics of infantry and reassessing the behaviour of cavalry to so improve the artillery. One of the earliest acts that he implemented was to streamline the calibres, which would make everything easier. Rather than 16 different varieties of cannon, by 1630, Gustavus's force fielded just three different types, the 24, 12 and 3-pounder varieties. Powder was improved and had to adhere to a national standard which helped to prevent explosions, and iron guns were mostly removed or relegated to fortresses so that only copper or gunmetal guns would be used by the soldiery. Gustavus also engaged in some covert projects for the sake of increased technological sophistication. Throughout the early 1620s, he commissioned his gunsmiths to operate in secret at Stockholm, and in 1623, a six-pounder gun gave him hope for future improvements. This secrecy was quite unlike the openness with which Maurice of Nassau had discussed his new drill. Evidently, the Swedish king believed he was onto something revolutionary. Shortly thereafter, the most famous such gun was born, the three-pounder, or so-called leather gun. While this leather gun is often recorded as a great success, it would be more accurate to note that it was a successful experiment. The weapon was used for barely two years from 1627 to 29 before being retired. The main complaint of the Swedish armies when confronting the Poles on the battlefield was that the gun was still too heavy to be moved quickly and it was too fragile, since it was mostly made out of leather, to inflict much damage, which made the effect of lugging it scarcely worth it in the first place. Thus, the gunsmiths returned to the drawing board in the late 1620s, and the following year their creation was complete. It was still a three-pounder, but the barrel was now made from the more durable gunmetal, and with a reduced and streamlined carriage, so that the gun remained nearly the same weight as its leather predecessor, which was quite an achievement. The gun could be pulled by a single horse, or moved by two or three men at a reasonable pace. And at virtually the same time, Gustavus's gunsmiths invented the artillery cartridge, which placed in a single bundle the ingredients necessary for a quick reload. This was a similar idea to the musket cartridge. By reimagining the role and accessibility of artillery, Gustavus changed in a few years what commanders had been struggling with since the advent of gunpowder, that being how to make effective use of heavy guns. The Swedish king effectively turned the question on its head. Commanders would have access to tens of small guns rather than a handful of very large pieces. At a range of 300 metres, the three-pounder was more than equal to the task of ruining the enemy formations, especially when used in vast quantities, as at Breitenfeld, as we'll see. What Gustavus had created was not merely a more mobile cannon, but the so-called regiment piece. The Swedish king was not content with bettering the efficiency of the different arms of his forces. He also wanted to combine and integrate them. Artillery would no longer sit, misunderstood and underappreciated, at the rear of the battlefield. Instead, officers would be trained with this regiment piece, and for the first time, these heavier weapons would be attached 
to each squadron of 600 men, with the required experts and engineers present in each squadron to operate and explain them to the common soldier. We have to emphasise this was truly a revolution in combined arms, and Gustavus's adversaries, save arguably for the aforementioned Wallenstein, proved wholly unable to combat the innovation. It was also visibly impressive, as Gustavus arrived in Pomerania not only with an army, but also with legions of engineers, gunsmiths, sappers and miners, which all had a part to play in the thoroughly integrated army. Gustavus was also fortunate that thanks to an abundance of copper at home, the cost of these improvements to the infantry and artillery did not break the Swedish bank. With its artillery and infantry tactics on par with, or surpassing, the more elite military forces of Europe, Gustavus turned to the cavalry. Cavalry in Sweden was far from a historical necessity on the battlefield. The rough and hilly nature of the country contributed to the lack of an intensive horsemanship tradition, as in France or Britain, and only 3,500 mounted soldiers could even be fielded in 1611. Changing the horse-breeding culture of Sweden was one mission, but Gustavus also wished to change how cavalry fought, so that they would not engage uselessly in the caracol, that manoeuvre which saw cavalry expose themselves to enemy fire as they did so, and nor would they weakly screen and scout for enemy forces. Gustavus wished to replace these tired tactics with those of greater force, a desire reinforced all the more, we imagine, by his sight of the Polish cavalry, which cut such an impressive profile. Furthermore, like the other arms he had bettered, Gustavus wanted a greater integration of the cavalry with the infantry and artillery, so that each could support the other. A powerful charge at the correct moment, Gustavus believed, and his cavalry would more than earn their keep. Some experimentation followed, with dragoons, essentially mounted infantry who could ride to where they were needed on the battlefield before dismounting, these were imported from Germany. Gustavus believed that by providing the cavalry with two pistols instead of a carbine or arquebus, they would be able to make greater use of their strengths. They were taught to ride at a gallop, fire their pistols at speed, and then unsheath their swords. To be equal to this formidable task, Gustavus employed only cuirassiers, armoured horsemen who would be capable both of disrupting enemy formations with pistol shot before unbalancing and hopefully routing them in the charge. In comparison to the other arms, it has to be said, Gustavus's improvements to cavalry were the least impressive. Yet, in an era where debate on the best use of cavalry continued to be waged relentlessly as its own kind of private war, and military theorists seemed to change their minds regularly, the adaption was a useful one especially in combination with his other improvements. The Swedish army, which landed at Pomerania in July 1630, in other words, was not merely eagerly anticipated by the emperor's enemies. It was also composed of state-of-the-art professionals with integrated military arms, sporting sophisticated technological advancements and following the latest in infantry tactics. As if that was not enough, to top it all off, it was commanded by one of the most astute innovative commanders of the modern era. Much like his predecessors, though, he was now compelled to put all of these improvements to the test. All of these improvements would be for naught if Gustavus Adolphus was defeated in his first proper encounter with the enemy, and as he neared the Saxon town of Breitenfeld in early September 1631, it was plain that the world was watching. 
So in the next episode, history friends, patrons and PhD pals, I will be unveiling this story of the Battle of Breitenfeld, perhaps one of the most famous stories in the Thirty Years' War, and certainly I would argue the most important battle of that conflict. I'm really looking forward to that, but I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I hope you've got some satisfaction out of looking so deeply into Gustavus Adolphus's impressive innovations. Until next time then, history friends, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 10 of 17th Century Warfare. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.